Welcome to episode three of the SOMA podcast. This episode is not our usual interview, but is rather a live recording of this year's AAIA visiting professor, James C. Wright. His lecture delivered at the University of Sydney on August 23, 2017, was titled Bringing the Dead to Life. In this lecture, Professor Wright introduces some of the latest work he and his team are undertaking in the Nemean Valley to understand the settlement and burial practices of the Bronze Age. You'll hear a welcome by Dr. Stavros Paspalis, Director of the AAIA, at the beginning, and at the end you'll hear Dr. Ted Robertson give the vote of thanks. I encourage you all to listen through to the very end, as Ted not only perfectly summarises how inspiring the many seminars and lectures given by Professor Wright were this year, but I also think he captures the true thanks we all feel for the Institute's team in putting together such a great program each year as part of the visiting professorship. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I have. I'm Savros Paspalas and I'm the Acting Director of the Australian Archaeological Institute at Athens and I'd like to welcome you all here this evening and it is also a great pleasure to welcome back here again uh, to this venue um, at the Institute's 27th visiting professor, Professor Jim Wright and his colleague and wife um, Dr Mary Dabney. As those of you who were here last week will know, Professor Wright is a leading authority on the Mycenaeans their place in the Bronze Age, Aegean, and their legacy. His many years as a lecturer and then professor at Bryn Mawr College, as well as director of the American School of Classical Studies at Athens since uh, 2012, until approximately two months ago, six weeks ago, um, uh, provided him with a a great platform from which uh, he undertook his wide-ranging research that resulted in many papers and edited books, with two further uh, major publications on the way, and uh, I should expect many more after those as well. I could go on much longer, for, um, as our speaker's CV is so rich, but I'll just mention that his fieldwork is focused on Crete and the Peloponnese, and it is in the latter region, specifically in its northeastern areas, that he has been most active, um, as primarily as director of the interdisciplinary Nemea Valley Project since 1981. And clearly it's an, an aspect of that project um, on which he will speak to us uh, this evening um, in his presentation, Bringing the Dead to Life, Scientific Excavations of a Mycenaean Chamber Tomb Cemetery in the Nemea Valley. So without any further ado, I call on Professor Tim Wright. Myself hooked up here. I was once at a a conference in Mannheim, Germany, and the speaker hooked this up right next to his heart, and we suddenly started hearing kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. <laughs> it was, he didn't know what it was at first, but we did. We knew that if he had a heart attack in the middle of the lecture, he would be the first to learn. But, um, thank you very much for your generous introduction. I'd like to thank all of you for your very friendly hospitality. Uh, my wife and colleague, uh, Mary Dabney and I have really enjoyed Sydney. It beyond lives up to its expectations and its reputation 
Um, and I'd particularly like to thank Dr. Paspalas and Camilla Norman who have shuttled us around and made introductions and made it very easy for us to uh, be here. And of course, I'm particularly indebted to Professor Kambitoglu, the genius of this program of visiting lectures and of the Australian Archaeological Institute in Athens. Those of us who are part of the community of 19 foreign institutes now in Athens um, are very aware of the wonderful Greek word alilangia, uh, solidarity, and it's a wonderful community and the Australian Institute plays an important role in that uh, community and in promoting it and it really is a jewel in the crown of the University of Sydney that the Institute exists and is supported here and I'm very indebted uh, and honored to have been selected the 27th uh, lecturer in this series which has many distinguished uh, archaeologists I'll do the best I can to live up to that reputation so thank you once again the, uh, I want to talk this evening uh, about uh, excavations that we undertook in this uh, century as a part as, uh, of the Nemea Valley Archaeological Project, which began in the 1980s. And the one thing we couldn't find as a result of our survey work in the Nemea Valley or excavations was the cemeteries. So we excavated a settlement, we surveyed the entire valley region where people lived, but we didn't really know about their burial practices. Uh, we knew that there should be cemeteries, and I knew this in particular because as a graduate student I had excavated with Professor Stephen Miller and uh, Professor Stella Miller, who were excavating the sanctuary of Zeus, one of the great four athletic Panhellenic sanctuaries of, of Greece. And, uh, and, and during the course of that excavations in 1976, we learned of the looting to the west of us, about 10 kilometers to the west of us in the neighboring valley, the Fliasian Valley, at the site of Aidonia, which means nightingale in Greece. And it's a beautiful site. And a, a cemetery was being looted, but we didn't know what. We just knew that they had looted a Mycenaean cemetery. Some uh, months after the looting was stopped, the archaeological service came in and began undertaking rescue excavations and discovered some fantastic gold jewelry in a pit that had only been partially dug in the, in the bottom of one of the chamber tombs there. And what you see in, this photo, in these photographs are the chamber tombs, the dromoi or the corridors that are cut into the slope that lead down into the chambers. And the chambers of these tombs, as you can see in the lower right photograph, are cut in the shape of a house. They literally even have beams carved in the ceiling. So they really are houses of the dead. And that tells us something about this tradition of chamber tomb cemeteries throughout Greece. They're introduced early in the Mycenaean period, as early as about 1600 BC, but they particularly take off during the period of the palaces. And we didn't know more about these tombs because they weren't really adequately published, although we had the pleasure of looking at material in the storerooms of the Nemea Museum where they were stored. So. Finding a chamber tomb cemetery for us was something that, that was of interest to us, but it wasn't something we accomplished in our work in the 1980s. We had come to the Nemea Valley, which is up here in this region above Mycenae, really off the map, 
because we were interested, at least for the Bronze Age, in understanding the rise of Mycenae and how Mycenae might have expanded to include a territory that it controlled. And this had actually been a long debate in the history of research into the late Bronze Age of the northeastern Peloponnesus, whether or not Mycenae ever achieved hegemony over the other settlements in the Argolid or even up into the Corinthia and Isthmia and these other regions. It still is a matter of some debate. And in contrast, we knew because of the great Linear B tablets that are recorded in an early form of Greek from the palace of Nestor at Pylos, we, we know a lot about the geography and kingdom of Pylos, but uh, how we understand Mycenae wasn't absolutely clear. It clearly up here in the upper reaches of the Argive plain is in a commanding position, particularly as it controls the passes that head over into the northeastern uh, region of the Corinthia and then from there on into central Greece. So that was part of the research program behind the Nemea Valley Archaeological Pro Project when it began. Just for those of you who've just come by, because this is something I've referred to in all the other lectures, the, the broader reach of Mycenaean civilization begins around 1700 BC, uh, and it's particularly known from the early work by Heinrich Schliemann in the discovery of the shaft graves, the so-called royal uh, shaft graves at Mycenae that were marked by limestone stele, uh, and they were found here beneath this circle of, of stones that surrounded the burials known as Grave Circle A, and then later another burial complex found out, out in front of the citadel known as Grave Circle B, and they had gold masks over the dead, males and females, although we don't have female masks, and uh, collections of jewelry, of jewelry and of weapons in particular that characterize these as warrior tombs. So that's sort of the beginning, an encapsulated beginning of the shaft graves. Within a hundred years, 150 years, there's a transition to building massive underground tholos tombs that are vaulted underground tombs that, are, and in this instance the great tomb of Atreus is built entirely out of an ashlar kind of masonry made out of hard conglomerate from the local resources in the area. And if you go to the British Museum and also to the National Museum in Athens, you can see a reconstructed form of the facade of this tomb. All of these tombs, chamber tombs and tholoi, were opened and closed for multiple burials. So we are thinking about different generations of individuals, probably within a kin group or within a family a dynasty being buried within them. And that's an important aspect of the history of Mycenaean mortuary practices. These practices, especially with these large tombs like the Tholos tombs, are tied in with the construction of citadels, of fortified citadels, such as we see here at Mycenae, and the great Lion Gate that is well known to anyone who has visited Greece or read an introduction to Mycenaean civilization that leads up to the palace at the interior, which is set up here on the top of the citadel, on a terrace and is marked out by a court, formal entrance rooms, and then a vestibule leading into an interior anteroom 
and the main central room of the so-called Megaron of the palaces with four columns around a central hearth and a seat for the king seated at the side. That's the seat then of the ruling structure of the Mycenaean period uh, to which the Tholos tombs and then during the period of the palaces the chamber tombs belong. So we begin around 1700 BC, but what I'm going to talk about this evening really covers this period of the palaces, let's say about 190 years, at the earliest 1390 BC. The material we'll look at is a little later than that. And just to give you a sense of the geography, here is Mycenae and how it's connected via various routes that exist today and that we have walked and that we know and lead up to Chungitsa, the settlement that we've excavated in the Nemea Valley with its neighbor valley near Cleone and Zigurias to the east and to the west, Ayirini and the city-state of Phlius in classical times and the, the Rob Cemetery site of Idonia over in the western reaches. So that's the geography of the region we'll be talking about. And as I said, it has to do with our project studying the nature of human settlement and occupation throughout the Nemea Valley and its relationship to the rise of the Mycenaean palaces during the palace period, during the 14th and 13th centuries. And in particular, this uh, trench, which is, is buzzing at us here, uh, that we excavated, tells us in encapsulated form uh, that our settlement on Chungitsa during the palace period was incorporated into the, the palace and uh, the reason it's, uh, I'm drawing attention to this trench that was excavated here in Unit 9 where we found a deep deposit of a huge pit with hundreds and hundreds of cups and lots of animal bones, pigs, sheep and cattle, as many as six cattle and lots and lots of figurines that represent deities and, and uh, people who are, who are figurines that represent worship in the Mycenaean period. And in this deposit was found a unique large figure, a similar one that was perfectly preserved was found in a sanctuary at the site of Philakopia on the island of Milos. Most of these figures are found in palatial contexts. And the discovery of this assemblage at at uh, Chungitsa led us as a team and Mary who uh, published with uh, two other colleagues an article to interpret this as a feasting deposit that had to do perhaps in some way with the way in which tribute or surplus that had been collected perhaps barley and wheat was sent off to the palace at some point during the year. So um, the chamber tomb cemeteries that I want to talk about are part of the phenomenon of the settlement of Chungitsa in the Mycenaean period being oriented now in a social context rather than in a political economic one to the palace at Mycenae. I had written an article in a Feshrift in 2008 in which I argued that the origin of these cemeteries that we excavated at Barnavos and at Ayasotira that lie about 800, kilo, 800 meters and a, and, a, and a kilometer from the settlement of Chungitsa had to do with the reorientation of the social conception of the settlers 
who lived um, at, at this small hamlet of Jungitsa, a reorientation where they buried out in the landscape, claiming some sense of ownership or position within the la landscape, perhaps because they had rights or even ownership of the agricultural land that lies just uh, where the cemeteries are located and down into the valley itself. And also because they adopted the primary form of burial, the chamber tomb, which is associated with the palace sites. This was a new form of mortuary practice for the Nemea Valley, and it represents a, a remarkable shift that goes hand in hand with that feasting deposit that I just showed you. The uh, landscape is a, a series of upland plains that are colluvial basins, and this is shown very well in this photograph of uh, that looks out from the cemetery at Idonia, the Rob Cemetery and settlement that our colleagues from the University of Heidelberg had investigated in a survey after the looting of the Chamber Tomb Cemetery there. And just as a byword before I get deep into this, in 1993, the material from this looting showed up in the market, in the art market in Manhattan at the Michael Ward Gallery at East 93rd Street. And it was published in an article in the New York Times that my wife Mary brought to my attention. And as soon as I saw the article, I looked at her. She smiled and looked at me and said, I knew you were going to say that, that this is the looted material from the tombs at Idonia. And um, to make a long story short, it's a kind of Indiana Jones story that I'm happy to talk about after the lecture. Uh, a number of us archaeologists in the United States working in, con in, in collaboration with authorities in the Ministry of Culture were able to force the dealer to turn this loot over to uh, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C., and in 1996 it was repatriated to Greece and, and to great... Uh, um, applause by the community of archaeologists that uh, had been fighting for a long time to stop the importation of illegal antiquities uh, around the world and particularly into the United States. So today the entire assemblage that you see is united, reunited in the museum in Nemea. Everything that is blocked out with an X is what was up for sale for about a million and a half dollars by Michael Ward. And he got a $150,000 tax write-off for his donation. So in the end, the public tax dollars helped him do the right thing. So that is, a, that is an encapsulated story, and it was in the background of my mind when I was, went to Nemea in 2001 and was speaking to colleagues in the area, and my local excavation foreman summoned me to come out to the west of the village where he showed us uh, showed me a uh, tomb that, uh, that that was that was being robbed at the time, and this is what led us to begin excavation of these chamber tombs in the Nemea Valley, and that turned into a project sponsored by the Canadian Institute in Greece because I wasn't able to get a permit through the American School of Classical Studies except for the first year of excavation. The permits are 
uh, competitive. And it wasn't that our project wasn't competitive, we just weren't in line for a permit. So we were managed to get one through the Canadian Institute where we worked with Angus Smith, the professor at Brock University uh, in Canada, and a former doctoral student of mine who came up uh, and worked with us and we carried out this research project. Uh, and that, I, I just want to say before I get beyond it, so it was highly collaborative. Sevi uh, Triandafilu, in particular from Aristotle University at Aristotle University in Thessaloniki, uh, is our bone analyst, our bioarchaeologist, and Evangelia Papi is uh, an archaeologist in the Inspectorate of Archaeology in uh, the region. And they formed the core of the collaboration, but we brought a lot of other collaborators, particularly scientific analysts, into the project. So our undertaking was a first challenge in, of how you would excavate a robbed tomb. And the first tomb I want to talk briefly about is the Barnavos Cemetery that you see in this slide, which lies just to the west of the village of, of, of ancient Nemea from our settlement of Tungisa and south of the Hagia Sotira Cemetery. This is what it looked like when we uh, began our work. The, uh, this is the dump that the looters had created. They dug in a big circle down into the chamber and just thrown all the soil around on the sides. There were human bone scatters all over the surface and inside the mounds, along with pottery debris. We have no idea what they found of value within the tomb, and we hope that they hadn't dug it all out, but as we excavated the chamber, we saw they dug all the way to the bottom. There was nothing left but a couple indications of pits where the burials had been, but fortunately, the, the, the corridor, the entrance, was preserved. And we were able to dig it, and we wanted to dig the whole thing as if it were a real archaeological site. That is, to, we, we regarded the, the, the looting uh, dumps as part of the archaeology. And in doing this, we excavated everything in a very careful grid system so that we kept uh, good locational information about where things were found. And this turned out to be really uh, important because just as a primary illustration, this pot is made up of sherds that were found in all of these localities. And this is basically material that's been fallen, thrown out downslope from the looters' debris. A couple pieces were found in the chamber, and others, uh, as you see, were scattered widely. And interestingly enough, we were able to ascertain that all the painted pottery had been deposited with the burials in the chamber, whereas when we excavated the undisturbed corridor entrance, all of this, these fragments of pots that you see here are unpainted drinking cups. And they are associated with a ceremony that's carried out after the closure of the tomb, when the dead have been placed within the chamber, the entrance to the chamber is walled up, and then there was a ceremony probably toasting the dead with wine, and the vessels are thrown into the corridor and shattered, and other things can be left. I think we have um, more of them here, and indeed, uh, right up against the closing wall, there was a single fee-type figurine that was placed there. So that helped us 
because we were so systematic, understand that there are different activities of deposition that are part of the mortuary ritual that takes place at the time of the deposition of the interment of the dead inside. We didn't know what we could do with the bone material. It was in such bad shape, terribly uh, uh, decayed and uh, broken up and fragmentary, but we again marked and counted the number of bone types and the bone analyst recorded them according to whether they were cranial or clavicle or femur or fibula and so forth as are shown here. And by mapping it in this fashion, we were able to recover to some extent the distribution of the burials. And what our analyst concluded was that there were probably several openings to the tomb, multiple burials over perhaps 100 to 110 years, something like that. And they included uh, three adults, uh, at least one female, possibly a child. And th this careful attention to the debris from the looters' dumps helped us to recover an enormous amount of information that would otherwise have been lost if we had dug it in a more traditional and less careful manner. We were particularly interested in the fact that these are multi-generational tombs. So we, we kept what's called a bulk of soil. We didn't dig all the soil. We wanted a profile of the openings and closing the tombs along the, the side of the corridor. And we also kept a bulk up in front of the entrance down into the chamber. So you can't see the so-called stomian, which is the walling of the doorway uh, behind the soil here. We wanted to understand the multiple phases of uh, that. And here you can see that there are gravel deposits here that record different openings and closings of the tomb. We worked with a geomorphologist who was a specialist in micromorphology, and he helped us understand the, how to read the sequences. As our, the soil is very much similar because every time they close the tomb, they simply refill it with the soil that had originally been taken out when they dug the corridor in the first place. So they just keep putting the same soil in over and over again over multiple periods. But we could see that there were strata sloping down that suggested that as they added later burials, they didn't dig all of the corridor out, but it came in at more of a sloping angle. And this was confirmed in his reading of these sections that we took out. So what happened was our micromorphologists had us impregnate these with isinglass, and then they were wrapped in plaster jackets. Then they were impregnated in resin, and then cut and looked at both with a naked eye and under a microscope. And, and what he could tell us at the outset was that it looked to him that the soil that was gathered here at the sides was loosely aggregated, whereas the soil that's gathered in the center leading into the tomb was a little bit more compact. And these interfaces that he marked out here hypothetically would have been different opening uh, levels of the tomb. So when he looked at it all under a microscope, what he was able to determine was that indeed the the soil from the central areas was rather loosely aggregated. The dark areas are known as bugs, and they are openings, that's hollows, where the soil isn't too compacted. Whereas at the sides, they were very loosely aggregated because gravity had allowed the larger 
pieces to gather there, and there wasn't any other movement, and so they were uh, they had not been disturbed at all. Whereas in the center, where the interfaces are, the soil is really compacted, and that's because people were moving in and out. So that's actually a floor for one of the for each one of the openings into the tomb. And we ask our collaborator, Dr. Karkanis, how how long was this opened? And he said, well, one thing that we can say for certain is no humus uh, developed here. There wasn't any plant life that grew and then gathered here. So it, it, it wasn't open for, let's say, longer than six weeks or so. He couldn't say with, with a high degree of accuracy, but it certainly wasn't open for six months or a year. So in this sense, we began to be able to be confident that we could reconstruct the use of these tombs over their life in a way that hadn't been done by archaeologists in previous excavations of chamber tombs. And while this was going on, uh, one of the, the assistant carpenters who was helping us build tables for sorting the pottery in the museum had been convicted of looting tombs and had just gotten out of jail. And he was very excited by archaeology and really eager to meet us. And we were less eager to meet him. I didn't want to be associated with him in the village, but he kept pestering me, telling me he could show me all kinds of things throughout the valley, about which I had no doubt. One day he came up to the site and he said, you must come, Kiryatzimi, he said, you must come over to Ayasotira up here because they're looting a cemetery. And I didn't, again, didn't want to go, but he kept on. And so we went up, and lo and behold, we found a tomb that was so freshly uh, partly excavated that they'd clearly been digging the night before. And I immediately called up the guards, and we uh, organized a team in collaboration with our colleague from the in superintendent of antiquities, and she undertook a rescue excavation of this cemetery that was just a kilometer to the north at Ayasotira. And throughout the seasons of excavation with our team from the Canadian Institute in Greece and Bridmar College and elsewhere, the looters continued to try to get into the cemetery. So you can see some of the looter trenches here. These are actual probes that the looters undertook using some kind of mechanical device, probably um, a half horsepower motor that's mounted with a drill. And they would be drilling across the hard pan soil, which when the drill hit it, it would, wouldn't go in very easily. But when they would hit the corridor of the tomb, which was looser soil, it would sink down immediately. And so as they marched across, they could identify these corridors, and they would keep marching upslope till they got to a point where they could recognize that they were just above the chamber, and then they dig down, go into the chamber, and rob everything out. So that's how they work, and we had to deal with that. While we were conducting excavations, we had to hire a guard uh, to guard the site while we excavated. And it uh, adds to the story of looting and the importance of archaeologists working in tandem with officials from the Ministry of Culture to stop looting, to salvage tombs, to preserve the important archaeological, cultural information in its setting. And that's particularly important for us because we were interested in the region of the Nemea Valley, and now we had two cemeteries 
probably from our settlement of Chungitsa, and we had the looted tombs at Aithonia that began to put together a completely new picture of the late Bronze Age in this region of Greece. That, that before the 1970s and before our, our work in 2001 through 2008 simply didn't exist. So uh, this is a, a way of talking about uh, our approach to the valley and why discovering these tombs was extremely important to provide supplementary information to our larger quest to understand the nature of settlement in this valley system. So in this map, what you can see uh, are the location of the cemeteries, the sanctuary of Zeus, and the circle is the settlement at Chungitsa. And our geomorphological study, working with a geologist who studied the area, had recorded the area of arable land in the valley bottom. And it's interesting to see how the cemeteries are located in uh, right along the edges of that arable land at exactly the same n number of meters above sea level, that is between 360 and 380 uh, meters above sea level, as the settlement. So there's a degree of intervisibility in the landscape uh, such that if you're standing in the cemetery at Ayasotira and take a photograph uh, and look straight across, you look right off to the settlement. So people living in the cemetery could look out to the tombs of their ancestors over here at Barnavos or here at Ayasotira or at any other cemetery that was located within the region. And that creates a spatial topography that probably was important to them as the people who farmed the landscape, claimed the land, and participated in the integration of this landscape into the larger political economy of the Mycenaean world. So that takes us then to the excavations. And I'll just talk briefly about the excavations of Aya Sotira. We have, in Greece, if you want to excavate, you have to purchase the land. So we had to negotiate with the landowner. This was a bit difficult because the landowner who held this plot of land where the cemetery was primarily located, had a, an olive grove here. It isn't that he didn't want to sell the olive grove. He didn't want to sell the olive grove to the Americans. I tried to convince him to sell the olive grove to the Canadians. <laughs> he didn't want to sell to them either. Um, and so it had to go through a process of expropriation. And we have to raise the funds to do this. And this is a way in which the Ministry of Culture, in, in conjunction with the foreign institutes in Greece, is able to allow the foreigners to carry out research, to purchase the properties, to fence them off, and to protect them. We began our excavations uh, by sinking trenches, well, actually by surveying the surface of the ground first, because one of the things we wanted to know was was there any residue after the tombs were closed on the surface of the ground that would record post-mortuary activities? Unfortunately, the olive grove had been, to plant the olive grove, they bulldozed the, the, the soil. And that's probably how these tombs actually came to light initially, probably in the late 1980s, so that three of them were already looted. But we undertook uh, using a, a ground penetrating radar and we systematically uh, ran the radar through the area hoping to identify tombs beneath the ground 
that wasn't part so successful, partly because there were thousands of shotgun shells over the surface of the ground that, that disturbed the radar frequencies. We picked them up, and we still had trouble recognizing the tomb. So we resorted to the old uh, time-tested tradition of digging trenches across the slope. And when we would intersect one of these dromoi or corridors, we would then recognize where the tombs were, and we could open them up. And what you can see here are the plow marks from the plowing that had disturbed the tombs and even caused the chambers to collapse. So this is uh, one of the tombs that we excavated, tomb four. And uh, here's the ground pen penetrating radar at work. Um, in better conditions, the ground penetrating radar would almost certainly have recognized the stone closure of the doorway leading into the chamber. And in fact, post facto, after finding uh, one of the tombs, uh, this one here, we saw that there was a signature in the ground penetrating radar that showed that, that stone uh, closure. We just couldn't recognize it because there was a huge electrical cable underground that created a very strong signal that, that confused all of us and misled us as to what was there. So this is one of the tombs that we excavated. You can see the drawings here that show uh, a section through to where the stone closure was. And here's the collapsed chamber. We had to dig out all of the soil that, was, uh, that had fallen in, which slowed the process, especially because we were being so careful. Here's the corridor leading in. And here's where it closes off to a narrow entrance. So this is the, where the door is that leads into the interior. And you'll see that there are three pits here. Above these three pits were, were the latest burials within this tomb. And here you can see there's a niche. And a number of the niches, a number of the tombs had niches in the corridor. And we were very systematic, not only in digging these such that we recorded everything within every square meter that we were excavating, but we also had protocols for dry sieving everything and for running the soil through a flotation device because we wanted to collect any plant remains or any small microfossils or shells that might be there, uh, anything that would float, anything that we could catch in a geological sieve. So we, we were looking for as near to 100% recovery and location and context as we could. And I'll talk about this as we move forward. And in each tomb, we developed this protocol of leaving bulks of soil so that we could then take these samples to give to our micromorphologist to record the different strata of opening and closing of the tombs over the lifetime of their use. Here's a photograph looking down into the upper burials. Unfortunately, the calcareous soil didn't preserve the bones well, so that we have not been able to carry out the isotopic and other chemical analyses of the human skeletal remains that we had hoped to do. But we found other information that uh, turned out to be extremely interesting and novel in, the, in our understanding of Mycenaean mortuary practices that I'll return to later. But these are the latest burials. And, and you can see that these are adults lying uh, next to each other. There are four of them lying here in the tomb above these pits. And they had pots placed uh, around the burials. The crania are up here. And we collected all of these very carefully. And in particularly, 
in particular, we were especially careful in collecting whole vessels that we thought we would be able to take samples from the interiors of. To nowadays, thanks to molecular biology, you can do what's called organic residue analysis. And that means that if there's any organic material within a vessel, whether it's wine or oil or plant material or animal material, it will leave a residue, various lipids, as well as uh, some crystals. For example, wine leaves tartaric acid deposits. And, and if you hand them over to a molecular biologist, they can take these scrapings from the interior and run them through a spectrograph that will record and give you specific signatures of the contents of the vessel. So this is a very innovative technology, but it's one where you really need to be very careful because you can contaminate the samples with your fingers. You can contaminate them with other things. So we had protocols. You couldn't smoke in the tombs. Uh, we had to wear nitrile gloves if we were working in the tombs. And we would wrap the vessels in acid-free paper, put them in a bag and a plastic bag and give them to the analyst who then would take the samples in a laboratory condition. And we, we had a protocol for doing this and, and, and well, as I'll tell you as I move farther along, we sampled 26 of these vessels hoping to understand um, if they uh, did give food authorings or anything of, of such sort with, the, with the, the dead. When we removed those burials, we then went down to the lower burials, which recorded the, the earlier depositions within the tomb. And this is commonly known, that the bones will be gathered up by the succeeding uh, burying group that's bringing the next dead person or persons to be deposited in the, in the tomb. And they will often res respectfully be either pushed to the side or a pit will be dug and they'll be deposited within them. So again, we recorded them very carefully and handed them over to the bone analyst to study. So we knew that we had a sequence here. And uh, those sequences were also left as uh, behind in the, the walls that, that block up the entrance to the chamber. So from the next tomb, tomb five, we had a particularly well-preserved sequence. So the base of the corridor leading into the tomb, this scene sloping down here, uh, had soil behind it. So we, what we knew was that the first blocking wall probably had been removed. And the blocking wall four, at least going from top to bottom, from latest to earliest, uh, it was found down here. And it, it, it's, it's just the lower portion of those stones uh, were preserved. So when this one was originally built, it would have been a, a dry stone wall all the way to the top. Then when they came in and put another burial in, they dug down only, let's say, about to this level. And the, the base of the next blocking wall begins right in here, and it would have gone to the top, and so forth and so on. So we had four different sequences of these blocking walls within the tomb, although we thought there were, I think, five episodes of deposition. So there were other indicators that we could note here. And this, was, this reflects the care of our excavation, that we were able to record all of these and then correlate them with the micro 
morphological analysis that our geologist was doing and other information that we were recording from the tombs so that we could begin to correlate the number of openings to the deposition of burials within the tomb and check them against each other. For example, we were interested to know if there weren't perhaps periods when people would go back and open up the tomb not to deposit another dead person, but rather to memorialize the dead in some mortuary remembrance, such as we carry out in modern mortuary uh, behavior. And that did turn out to be the case in a number of the tombs. Now, we think we have the kind of hubris to believe that when we excavate as archaeologists, we recognize everything that we find. <laughs> but those of us who have experience know that we'd better use a dry sieve because we can't always see everything. It's encrusted with soil. Floating things is a way to really get everything. But if you floated, that is, if you took all of the soil out of a tomb and ran it through a water sieve, you'd never finish because you would have so much. So you have to be selective. So one of our protocols that was whenever we found something that seemed to be associated with the burial, we would collect all that soil and put it into the water flotation device. Our bone analyst was later looking through the residue from the water flotation. And she found over 500 beads that were about a millimeter to a millimeter and a half in size, drilled beads, small stone beads, that were associated with the soil in this niche that was found in the side of the corridor of tomb five. The niche had been closed off with slabs, as you can see here. When we pulled the slabs away, we then removed the soil and floated it. In some of these niches, we found little feeding bottles that seemed to be associated with the kind of thing you would give to an infant but we didn't find bone material. And that may be that these were infants who, uh, whose bones hadn't yet calcified sufficiently. And because of the calcareous nature of the soil, the bones had largely dissolved. If the teeth hadn't erupted, they wouldn't be preserved as well. And my wife, Mary, uh, has published a paper with uh, Angus Smith, the other director of the project, uh, uh, on these. Uh, talking about how it's important because of the infant mortality rate that is, that is so uh, high in these early uh, societies and also the death of mothers in, in childbirth that the children and babies would often get protective amulets or necklaces and things of this sort. And this is probably another indication that we discovered that helps us understand that these are probably infant burials that are set in the niches. And it may be that the niches not being in the chamber tomb may have a particular meaning as well. It may be that the child not having achieved uh, an age where the child could have been, in our own uh, rituals, baptized, hadn't actually been brought fully within the social circuit of the family as a survivor. And, Perhaps the, uh, the beads, again, are another way of trying to hope that the, that the child would live into childhood and then make his or her way into adulthood. So this is one way in which we, uh, by our, our approaches and methods of excavation, uh, were able to 
uh, gather information that led us to a deeper understanding of Mycenaean mortuary practices. Uh, this tomb was particularly interesting, tomb five. We're still looking at the same tomb because we discovered in its upper reaches here uh, uh, re remains uh, that suggested that there was uh, that, that there was a shallow pit burial that we can see here off to the side, and that there may have been an entry into the tomb even uh, uh, later in, in, its, uh, in its use. Here you see some of the pottery that is recovered from these tombs. So from episode five of tomb five, we have one of these feeding bottles with a sort of nipple-like uh, um, a spout on it and a, a, one of the figurines that is found often in the burials and also a simple drinking cup. The, the pottery that we've recovered along with uh, these necklaces such I've, as you see here and, and sometimes we even have uh, a piece of uh, jasper necklace that is uh, put into the, or gla and glass beads, uh, agate, I'm sorry, and faience, uh, record the attention to the dead, particularly to, to the, the, the infant burials uh, that we were finding. We could describe, by and large, these tombs as helping us do an archaeology of poverty in the sense that the settlement that we excavated never became a settlement of more than maybe 10 to 12 houses altogether. It's a very small hamlet associated with the territory uh, of Mycenae. And we didn't find in the excavations of the settlement a lot of bronze tools, for example, nor did we find knives, <coughs> daggers, or other tools of bronze, except in one instance or two instances within the tomb. So these are not high-status persons. And it's interesting that the, the levels of wealth are particularly recognized in uh, these infant burials, but not with the adult burials. Tomb three is an interesting one because when we opened it, it hadn't the chamber hadn't collapsed. It had been disturbed by the plowing, and there was an opening that looked into the chamber, and there were also a series of stones at the top, right in this area, just above the chamber, that perhaps were remnants of marker stones that were set up that would identify where the chamber tombs were that would help the residents when they came back to open the tomb again and then add uh, uh, additional burials to it. When we excavated the tomb, we found uh, this blocking wall in the entrance to the tomb and in front of it a large slab that was found right, right there in front of the blocking wall. And as we dug down into the tomb, we were very uh, surprised, happily surprised, to find within the chamber and also within the dromos or corridor these slab-covered graves at the interior. We were excited because th these seemed to be undisturbed graves of burials within the chamber. This one on the, on the inside uh, of, the, of the chamber had right up here a little amphoriskos, a little uh, jar, unpainted jar that was set right here, and then there were the slabs over it. When we lifted the slabs, we discovered there was nothing in them. So we thought, what in heaven's name is going on here? 
We hadn't seen any evidence as, as we dug down into the tomb that it had been looted. We found plenty of evidence that it was opened and closed like the other tombs. And here what we found was what seemed to be a very respectful removal of all of the human bone material from within these, these uh, cysts that were buried in the tomb. And then the slabs were very respectfully put back over it and the tomb was closed. And in fact, that was the end. So this pot represents the last object deposited in the tomb. It turned out there were two teeth that were preserved. That's all we have in the way of human skeletal remains from this tomb. But when we looked at the material that was deposited in the corridors in the layers of the openings and closings of the tomb over the history of it, we found two vessels, and I just show one of them here. Uh, one of them is uh, a conical riton, and the other is a, a wine-drinking vessel, a vessel for holding wine. And these vessels don't show up in chamber tomb cemeteries. If you go through the record of chamber tomb cemeteries excavated in Greece, they don't appear at all, I think it's fair to say. And one of our colleagues, Robert Cole of Hunter College in New York, had done a comprehensive study of these conical vessels, which have an opening at the bottom. They're associated with ritual activities throughout the Aegean world, uh, and particularly in the Mycenaean period. So we could theorize that there may have been buried in this tomb at some point in its life. A person who had a certain level of status and ability, perhaps a shaman of the village, and that this was an important person. And the question is, why did the burying group that controlled or owned or was responsible for this tomb go in late in the Mycenaean period and remove the bones and where did they take the bones? And we don't know how to answer that question. I'd like to think of it as a form of social promotion, that it may be that one member of this family or this bearing group became important not only in the community of Jungitsa, the settlement that we excavated, but in the region and may even have gone westwards to the big settlement of Idonia or to the southeast, to the major citadel of Mycenae and became a reputable person of those communities and at some time decided it would be good to bring all the ancestors over and have that person, that family, all of the family group buried again in a chamber tomb at this new area of settlement. This would be a way in which someone from the small hamlet that we're excavating became part of the larger communities in the region. It's just a way of talking about it. It leads us, though, to uh, consider uh, an issue that, that our bioarchaeologists confronted in analyzing the, the cemetery material, the bone material. We don't know, and one thing that, that is partly related to this is the appearance of, of chipped stone, of chipped obsidian in every one of these tombs. We don't know why this is here. We thought it might have something to do with defleshing of the bones or cleaning of the bones as you went in and moved bones that uh, had decayed to make room for another burial. But we're informed by our colleagues who do 
uh, chip stone analysis that obsidian is not good for that purpose and that we don't have cut marks on the bones that would suggest that. So we don't know what the chip stone is about, whether it might have something to do with some other post-funereal activity. But what we do know is that uh, they manipulated the bones within the tombs. And in the, one of the tombs that we excavated, one of the last, the last tomb we excavated, we found a pit that was chock full of burials of nine different individuals, if I get the number right. And when the bone analyst examined these bones and other bones that were, had been moved or redeposited in the, the, in, the, in the chamber tomb, she pointed out that she would have the entire skeleton absent some of the long bones or absent a cranium. And those missing bones aren't missing because we didn't dig carefully enough. They're missing because they were taken out of the chamber tomb at some point when people went in to make another burial. So there was a very conscious selection of different body parts of relatives, ancestors. They were removed. Perhaps they were taken back and held in the household of the family as a memento, as a way to remember a particular ancestor. It may have to do then with different connections, intergenerational connections that are tied in and perhaps also some ritual that it was permissible or it was required to bring some part of the ancestor back into the hearth of the household um, and, and, and retain that sense of belonging that of course dissolves over the generations of time that passes from one burial to another until the dead are forgotten. And it may have been associated with something like that. So that's a way to talk about it. I mentioned that these tombs are part and parcel of the integration of the community into the Mycenaean political, economic, and religious system. We also can say that the pottery that is deposited in these tombs was selected for the purpose of burial. And it's selected probably from potter's distribution centers at Mycenae. We have a colleague carrying out excavations of a house, Petsas house at Mycenae now, that seems to be a warehouse for pottery distribution. We have the same pottery as is found at Mycenae. So this is another indication. And uh, this is just a, 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 a diagram that shows the variety of pots, the extent to which painted pots, in particular small pots that will contain perhaps unguents and things like that, are found within the tombs, as well as the occasional drinking cup. Uh, I mentioned the organic residue work that we did. We, as I said, we analyzed 26 pots. They're shown here. And we didn't get strong signatures of fatty acid residues and of lipids. Some are associated with plants, as shown in this diagram here. But by and large, the pots that were analyzed uh, didn't have strong signatures. And our analyst says there are two possible reasons for this. One is that the gas chromatography wasn't sensitive enough and we need to send them to another lab to do a higher level of analysis to bring out the signatures more strongly. But the other one may be associated with the fact that this pottery was 
brought and put in the tombs at the time of burial for the purpose of burial and is not pottery that had been in the kitchens and in the household and been used for a long time and therefore the signatures aren't strong. It could be a mixing of both uh, uh, kinds of, of, of pots uh, in the burials. We're interested and happy to be publishing this. The volume publishing this will come out shortly uh, in the next uh, couple days, actually, because of the necessity of very careful scientific protocols in collecting and carrying out this kind of analysis. There are a lot of people today who are publishing organic residue analysis and making very strong claims about plant remains, meat remains within pots that um, perhaps won't stand up to scientific scrutiny if they had been subjected to the same collection protocols and analytical protocols that ours have been subjected to. We also, while we were excavating, would clean our trowels and clean the soil and then take samples for phytolith analysis. And phytoliths are fossilized uh, cells of plants. Most plants, certainly grasses and reedy type plants, have specific fossilized cells and those, when the plant dies, the fossils, the silica that is embedded within them, then collapses and is left in the soil. And so we took systematic samples because we wanted to know, did they have roses that they left with the dead? Were there other flowers or any specific plants that were involved in the mortuary ritual? Did they bring mats into the burial? So we took vitalist samples from the corridor, from the entranceways into the tombs, and from the chambers. And we found some evidence of, of, of an, an, a large number of grasses within the tombs, and some cereals as well. And the cereals were particularly interesting because they also are, uh, go hand in hand with evidence that, are, that we collected for the paleobotanists. And it suggests to us that there was uh, a mixing of grains that may have been provided either for some kind of ritual meal that was prepared in and around the time of the burial or that was left with the dead. Uh, because some of these come from the corridors, we think it may have more to do with the burying group celebrating and this ritual that I mentioned before of having open vessels, perhaps pouring wine in them, smashing them and leaving them to the, uh, as offerings to the dead before they close the corridor entrance. Uh, so this was uh, very useful for us in carrying it forward. And then we had the, the bioarchaeological evidence, and I won't really have you look at this. This is simply a record uh, from the bioarchaeologist. What's particularly interesting is to look at the chart here that shows that we have neonates, infants, chi children, juveniles, young adults, prime adults, uh, mid-adults, and older adults, the total number of individuals that we were able to study, and a mortality curve. So if you have a mortality curve that works according to our understanding of infant mortality, childhood, young adult, and adult mortality, uh, that should be standardized or normalized for most populations. So this is what you would predict. And if you then, in the bar graph, look at the evidence, what you'll see is, um, I can't read it from here. I forget what I'm looking at. So even though we had quite a few neonates, not as many as would be predicted. This, uh, for infants, 
two to six years. We're right at the bar as we are for children and a little higher for juveniles um, and a little higher as you can see for adults. And then for mature adults, it's a lower group. Um, but this may be uh, partly uh, having to do with the difficulty of identifying all the tombs. But there seem to be some missing elements. But we definitely have all the constituent members of families here, so we can hypothesize that these are families over generations that are buried within the tombs. And as uh, it notes here in the square box, there's manipulation of the skeletons after deposition, so we don't have all the, 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 the bone material associated with the original burials because of the multiple uses and removal of them from the cemetery. So we have, uh, by collaborating with the scientists and instituting strict protocols of excavation and recovery, uh, we have a very accurate record of the individuals who are buried within this cemetery. And it emphasizes to us the extreme importance of context. And by which I mean, you can't just dig the tombs to get some of the bones and then hope you'll find gold rings and other things that dazzle the eyes. It's really important, especially to work with scientists at the micro level, to record evidence uh, for example, we have evidence of black pine, which is not local to the area, but comes from the mountains in the interior that was used in the tombs. It's charcoal. And the charcoal analyst said, you shouldn't have black pine here. The only, and we said, what's the primary reason that you would use black pine? And she said, they're really good for flagons, for torches. Perhaps there's either activities that are taking place at night, or they wanted to illuminate the chamber or even to smoke it out in some way and they use black pine because it's suitable for that purpose. You have to pay attention to context uh, where things are found and make sure that you find everything that you can and our uh, approach to this um, has been particularly successful in bringing a lot more information about these uh, mortuary activities associated with the settlement that we excavated than we have hereto found in excavation of hundreds of chamber tombs uh, throughout uh, the Mycenaean period in Greece. And of course, the larger question, which has to do with the antiquities market and looting, is as much as you might appreciate having a pot in your collection or owning a gold uh, ring or having a sword from the Mycenaean era, it has absolutely no meaning if you don't know where it came from. And that meaning isn't simply that you can say this was found in a tomb, but rather that it's part and parcel of trying to understand the entire nature of human occupation and residence within a landscape so that you can begin to, to write life histories of the individuals, of the family groups who participated in burials here that add more evidence than we have even from excavation of the small settlement on the slopes of Jungitsa that began our project in the 1980s. So I'll stop here and thank you for your attention. And this is a view of our landscape. If you like wine, please come to the Nemea region. It's one of the best wine regions of Greece. And we thank our many donors for making this work possible. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Professor Wright. Um, before calling on 
Dr. Ted Robinson of this university will give a vote of thanks. I will remind you all that there is um, wine and some slight uh, uh, solids to accompany it as well. Um, so we hope you'll all join, join us um, immediately after um, the conclusion of uh, the events here. But um, to welcome the vote of thanks, I'd like to call on the visiting professorship of the Australian Archaeological Institute at Athens has been an important feature of the landscape of archaeology in Sydney ever since I was a student, in fact. And I'm sure that I don't express to the staff of the Institute how grateful I am for it and how useful it is to us. Um, useful I mean, in one sense that, of course, you bring interesting people, people at the top of their field, people like Jim Wright, who do interesting work to come out to Australia and tell us about it. Um, more broadly, though, it struck me while I was listening to that lecture that another real value is that it brings people from other places and from other traditions, other intellectual traditions. So while you might be dealing with material we're familiar with, you're often coming at it from an angle that we're less familiar with. Now, Jim came up in a period of great ferment in archaeology, especially in American archaeology, um, with the rapid introduction of scientific methods into archaeology. And those methods found greater and lesser favour in different parts of archaeology. When it comes to Greece, certainly it's in prehistoric archaeology that we found greater favour, not in the archaic classical period that I'm more familiar with. Therefore, at his seminars and his lectures in the past week or so, I have been amazed at some of the scientific analyses you are applying to your things uh, in Greece. Amazed and I would have to say inspired. I mean, I spent, after your seminar yesterday on, on climate variability and effect on human occupation, I spent my day uh, with my nose in quaternary science reviews and vegetation history journal that I only sort of dimly aware of uh, before yesterday, but immediately I saw all sorts of things from your seminar um, that will be quite useful for my work. So, um, yes, we've seen in tonight's seminar what this combination of very, very well thought out and very careful field methodology together with appropriate scientific analyses can recover for us. And, and probably the, um, the important word there is, is appropriate scientific analyses. I mean, there is, one has to admit, a lot of bad science out there. And there's a lot of bad science in archaeology. I think you referred to some of it a little bit with these um, uh, residue analyses. And, and there are lots of terrible archaeological scientific papers that have come, I suppose, principally from the fact that communication between archaeologists and physical scientists is often relatively poor. Clearly not the case here. Um, and I suppose from a long career of working with scientists, of working with scientific data. Uh, Jim Wright understands these things from the inside out rather than the superficial level that many of us do and uh, has been able to produce you know, all of this information from, well, rock tombs and uh, uh, you've seen the results tonight. So, I mean, it will have, your visit here will have, uh, and this is not hyperbole, will have an effect on my practice. I assume it will on my colleagues and the students who've come along and heard your lectures in seminars. Uh, so for all of this, can we express our very sincere thanks to... Jim.